Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Now, it's important to understand, I hadn't said the words hearing aid out loud to Heather before, ever. I'd never Googled it on my computer or on my phone. I'd never texted that term to anyone or emailed it to anybody. But one day, Heather and I are sitting on our couch at home and we're having a conversation and where I'm sharing with Heather that like I've noticed lately that my hearing is starting to go and I'm, I'm asking people to repeat themselves more often. And we both agreed that, yeah, like I probably should look into getting a hearing test booked. Wouldn't you know that the next day, the next day, Facebook is showing me ads in my Facebook feed for hearing aids. The next day. Is that weird? Now, can I prove that Facebook hacked my microphone in my computer, which was open while we were having the conversation? Can I prove that they hacked my mic? No, I can't prove that they did. Um, most experts actually say that it's not, it's not likely, it's not feasible. The founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, he calls it a conspiracy theory. So I've become persuaded that they're not listening but that the truth is actually more disturbing than that. And, and we'll come to that in a minute. Uh, because this morning, we're continuing through our series called Our Social Dilemma. We are reflecting on our relationship with technology and asking, how can we align our use of technology with the way of Jesus? And, and if this works, what is happening each week is that we're remind, being reminded of who we are in Christ over and against what we're inclined to believe about ourselves from the technology. Now, when we began this series last week, we learned about how deceptively powerful this technology is. And yet, as powerful as it is, we still have a choice. We have a decision to make. We have a red pill, blue pill moment. When we're together next week, we do expect to be back in person. That's the plan. And we will continue through this series talking about how this technology rewards negativity and mean critical behavior. But today, we're going to think theologically about how these technology companies make money off of us. The question really is, are we okay with the system as it is? Or is there work for us to do in order to realign our use of this technology with the kingdom of God? And so to get at that, here's kind of where we're going. There's five parts to this morning's message. First, we need to talk about the algorithm and just understand what it is. We need to talk about how they know as much as they do. We need to talk about what their message is. What's the theology that drives this industry? And then what's our message? And then we're going to get real practical as we close and ask, what can we do? Now, a couple of things I feel like I need to say off the top, just to be clear, I don't believe that money is evil. I don't believe that the internet is evil or that advertising is evil. I don't believe that engineers and coders had evil intentions when they designed the technology to work, to work the ways that it does. I actually believe that they deserve to be paid for the work that they do. So for me, the problem isn't that persuasive technology makes money. And the problem isn't even that they make a lot of money. The problem to me, as we're going to see, is how the money is made, what they're actually being paid for. And for that reason, uh, today's message is called Dishonorably Profitable. 
And so the first question we need to wrestle with is like, what is an algorithm and why should we care? And I think to illustrate how it works, what it is, it would be helpful to use an example. You used an algorithm this morning when you got dressed today. You had a goal in mind, and that's one of the things that an algorithm needs. It needs a goal, and you had a goal. Your goal was to find a suitable outfit for the occasion. And then you reviewed a whole bunch of data. Facts like some of the clothes you might want to choose are dirty. They're in the, the laundry hamper. Some of the clothes aren't very comfortable. Some of the clothes are too warm or too heavy. And some of the clothes aren't warm enough. Some of the clothes you might want to choose are too formal. And some of the clothes you might want to choose from are too casual. And as you processed all of this data, your clothing algorithm made a bet and said that all things considered, this outfit, the one that you're wearing, this is the outfit that's best for this occasion. And that's why you're wearing what you're wearing. And so algorithms are predictions. An algorithm is a, is a bet. Uh, and and just, to, just so we know, the algorithms at Google and Facebook are extremely powerful. But, but fundamentally, they do the exact same work that yours does, okay? Your algorithm, it works just the same as the algorithms at Google and Facebook. The main difference is that there are hundreds and thousands of companies or interest groups or political movements that are willing to pay billions of dollars a year to hire their algorithm and not yours. And so that's why... Suppose you are a company in the GTA and you're really into comic books and, and nerd culture and you design t-shirts, okay? And your company can hire the Facebook algorithm and you, you can tell them, I want to sell all our t-shirts. So find me a thousand dudes in the GTA who have disposable income, who buy clothes online, who have good credit, who really like comic books, especially Batman, and who are likely to show their friends. And because Facebook has a ridiculously powerful algorithm, they can do exactly that. They can find you those people. And that's why if Heather opens Facebook at night, she might get an alert from a community group asking her maybe to recommend a contractor or something like that, or recommend a paint store. But when, when Mike opens Facebook at night, what's he going to see? Yeah, he sees an invitation to like an ad and save 20% off of his first Batman t-shirt from this company. You see, the, the way that it works is the algorithm knows that Mike is a better bet than Heather when it comes to the Batman stuff. And so the algorithm can easily drive sales of the Batman merch to a thousand fans, and that's pretty much harmless. But that algorithm can also be used to find a thousand views of a video that shows violence or racism. And it can be used to find a thousand retweets for some social media influencer who wants to be seen but hasn't earned the attention. And it can be used to find a thousand undecided voters. Or it can be used to find a thousand people who believe in aliens. And, and, and the point is, these technology companies can deliver because their algorithm is ridiculously smart and make really good bets about our behavior. And now we need to ask, how does it know? How does it know the things that it knows? Like, how is the algorithm actually able to make such good bets? Well, I've got, uh, I've got four ways that they've learned what they've learned about us. And just, just sit with me for a minute here as we, as we go through this. The first way that they know so much is by teaching us to react to trivial things. 
So I don't know if you ever noticed this, but your notifications show up at the very top of your screen on your phone or on your computer and in the most clear, easy to read font possible, you know? Maybe you've noticed that there's there's a, a red dot beside an unread message in your email inbox or in your text messages. Not a not a blue dot, not a green check mark or a little picture of a flower, but a big bright red dot. Um, and, and, and maybe you've noticed that there are certain videos that just autoplay in your Facebook feed or other social media feeds. Even if you don't click on it, it just automatically plays. Maybe you've noticed that. Maybe you haven't noticed that. Maybe what? Maybe you haven't noticed that your phone just vibrates for these very strange reasons. Like when a friend likes one of your photos, that gets your phone to vibrate. Not if there's like a fire nearby. Not if it's going to rain. You know, that's those don't make your phone vibrate, but, but a like on a photo, yeah, that's what gets a vibrate. Well, why is that? Well, it's the design, friends. That's, that's the design. There are teams and teams of engineers who have designed an alert system that's meant to interrupt your lives and, and make you go like, oh my goodness, you got a like on your photo, do something. And it's this interruption that's actually not that important but because it's designed to get our attention, it works. We react, we do something, we respond. And, and they're learning about us by teaching us to react to trivial things. Well, it also learns by encouraging us just to scroll and search forever. I don't know if you ever noticed, you can keep scrolling like infinitely and new content just keeps appearing. Have you noticed that? And that's strange because like it shouldn't be that way. You've only got a certain number of friends, but for some reason, you'll never run out of content that they can show you. Well, why is that? Or, or how come you can be shopping on an online website and when you put in your search term, how come it only shows you like 10 items per page? And how come the thing that you, you want might only be on the ninth page? Why is that? Well, again, it's the design. It's the, it's the design. They, those same engineers, they know a little bit about human psychology. They know that the, the searching impulse is a, is a more enjoyable impulse than the impulse for having. And they know that the longer that we scroll through the results, the more enjoyable the experience is. And the more that we scroll, the more that they're learning about us and what we like and what we're looking for. So they're learning about us by encouraging us to scroll forever. They're also learning about us by catering to our impatience, by cultivating us as impatient people. I've got a challenge for you. Think, think of this as homework. Next time you Google a question, see how long it takes you before you just give up. Like suppose you had a question like, um, like how did we get our Bible? Okay, if you Google that question, and if you can't find a good result or a good site after say like, 15 seconds of searching, okay? After 15 seconds of searching, would you keep looking? Like how, how long, how many, how many clicks would it be before you end up on Wikipedia? Well, there's a reason for that. And it's because Google knows that most people aren't gonna click past more than about two pages of search results. They also know that just because like so-and-so is a great Bible scholar doesn't mean that he or she is a good web designer. And so engineers have developed this tool called search engine optimization. So the way it works is this. Suppose there's two Bible websites. Website A is all text. It's clunky. It's not easy to read. It's not monetized, but it's helpful and it has good answers for the questions. That's website A. And there's website B. 
And it isn't quite as accurate or as well researched, but it has certain keywords in it and it has ad space that's dedicated and it's going to pay money up to uh, Google. Well, which of those two websites is going to show up in your results? It's the second. Even though the first website, website A, has better information, even if it's not well designed, site B is going to get the traffic because it is optimized. It's optimized. Just to just so you know, YouTube does the exact same things with with videos. That's just the game. That's just how the machine works. And and so what that means is that getting a website onto one of the, one of those first two pages is actually like super competitive. It's super expensive. It's a, it's a business. So think of that. It's rewarding impatience. It's disadvantaging people who are patient and discerning and careful. The thing is, no matter how many great resources there are out there, the ones that are search engine optimized, those are the ones that are going to get the traffic. And so by limiting the number of websites that are functionally accessible or easily accessible, they're actually able to learn a great deal about about how people work. Well, there's another way that persuasive technology knows as much as it does, and, and it's by collecting our data. They're collecting our data. So... How do they do that? Well, believe it or not, we give it to them. When we install these apps, when you first logged on to your device or your computer, you probably clicked OK on a user agreement that you know, was super long and complicated to read. You probably didn't read it. But when you clicked OK or accept, you gave them permission to collect your data. And so they do. They collect data from like all your email, all of it. So, so they have your email and all your contacts, just so you know. And if, if you use the same email address for other online accounts besides just your email, then they can cross-reference your activity on that app, like say Netflix or eBay or Amazon. They can cross-reference your activity there with what they know about you from your email. And maybe you're like, well, surely Gmail is more secure. I'm, dude, like, this is especially true of Gmail. They could check the user agreement. It's right in there. Like how, how else do we think that they can afford to give us a free email account and five gigabytes of storage? Well, it's because our email provides them the raw data that they need to create a really smart, really profitable algorithm. So they've, they've got our email. That's, that's just the deal. Sorry. They're uh, collecting data from all your posts. All your social media posts you've ever made, every comment, every photo, whether you tagged it or didn't tag it, isn't relevant for facial recognition technology. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, every article or link you've ever posted, every retweet you've ever made on social media, it's all saved. Even the ones that you deleted. No matter how innocent it was. Suppose it's just, you're just posting about your kids or you're just posting about your vacation or your pets. All of that is data that they can use because it's really valuable. It helps them to know about your gender and your kid's gender and your birthday and your politics and your faith and your food preferences and where you work and where you spend your time. They have all of that based on your posts on social media. Sorry. So they have all your email, they have all your posts, they have all your purchases as well. And I don't think this should be too surprising. This shouldn't be too surprising. Many websites that have a, an online store also have a tool embedded in it called a Pixel. I think it was developed by Facebook, but I could be wrong about that. But a Pixel is this tool that allows them to cross-reference customer data with social media accounts. 
Okay, so suppose, you know, today Heather and Maggie go onto the Canadian Tire website and because Maggie's been looking for some skates, suppose they purchase a set of hockey skates from the Canadian Tire website. Well, the account that we have is linked to Heather's email, which is linked to Heather's phone. And now the algorithm knows that next time there's a company that's trying to find customers for hockey gear, that, that maybe Heather's a good bet because the pixel told them about the skates that she bought today. And, and that's really valuable data. So they have your email, they have your posts and your purchases, they have your entire search history. Everything you've ever Googled, it's saved. And it's, it's cross-referenced with other data that it knows about you. And it doesn't even matter if you made your search in private mode or incognito mode or whatever. Your browser has that saved. In fact, your internet service provider has it too, whether it's Kojiko or Rogers or whoever it is that you're paying to use the internet, they have that information and that's why they can bill you accurately for the amount of, of data you use per month. The algorithm knows everything that you've searched for on any device, again, it's in your user agreement. So they have your search history and your purchases and your posts and all your email. Well, it also knows your location, like at all times. Unless you have disabled your GPS, these tech companies know a lot about you based on where you spend your time. They know where you work. They know where you spend those eight hours a day, right? Your phone also probably comes with you when you go on vacation. It, it probably comes with you when you go to Costco on the first Saturday of the month. It probably comes along with you to church. And so from 10 a.m. to noon on Sundays, it knows where you are and it also knows who else is nearby because of because they probably have their GPS enabled. So they know where, where you are and that's really valuable data because they also know what businesses are nearby and what, and what groups are nearby. The tent companies have it, they have your location, they have your search history and your purchases and your posts, they have all your email and finally, they have your friends. I don't just mean that tech companies know who your friends are, I mean that they have data about you based on what they know about you from your friends and your friends' social media activity and your friends' email and your friends' purchases and your friends' online activity. All of that stuff can be used to confirm what it knows about you or correct what it thinks it knows about you. And so, like, think about that. They know things about you that you don't even know about yourself because it didn't come from you, it came from your friend. And that's a ridiculous amount of data because they've got all of your data about you that they've collected from you. They've got all the data about you that they've collected from all of your friends. And then multiply that times every single user of this persuasive technology. That is a, an obscene amount of data that blows my mind. And all of that data is super valuable and they've got it. Okay, and so even if Facebook wasn't listening to our conversation about hearing aids that day, that actually doesn't matter because it was able to, able to collect that information from a whole bunch of other ways. Like maybe I was standing and staring at a digital ad for hearing aids at a mall one day, and it knows that. Maybe it knows uh, that I go through headphones pretty quickly. Maybe it, maybe it knows because of how loudly I crank the volume on the videos that I watch. Or maybe it knows how often I enable subtitles on Netflix. Or maybe it knows because a couple of friends of mine notice that in conversation I keep going, what? And, they, and so my friends Google hearing aids 
And if even one of those things is true, or if a couple of those things are true, then of course the algorithm is going to predict that I'm a pretty good bet for a hearing aid advertisement. Like that's a really good prediction actually, isn't it? In other words, they don't need to listen to our microphones. They don't need to watch us through our webcams because they've, they've gathered enough data on, uh, from us in all kinds of other ways and they did it with our permission. Now, how's that sitting with you? How's that sitting with you? How do you feel about that? I, just, I think we should pause here for a minute and just reflect on what this all means. I think this means something. I think, it's, I think that there is, there is a, a theology behind this. And I think we need to reflect on that for a minute and just ask, what is their message? What's their message? Now, for a lot of users of persuasive technology, the, the main problem is a financial one. And I, and I respect that, actually. Like these persuasive tech companies, they're making a ton of money off of us that, that we don't see. And we don't even get to decide how that money is spent, even though all of it was earned, or, or all, even though all that profit came off of, a, off of you and I. And so I, I think that that's a really good point. I think that there's a conversation to have there. But as followers of Jesus, what I'm trying to do here is just is reflect on this theologically and ask, what is the worldview that drives these business practices? Like, what does this business model say about, about personhood, about being human? Because it says something, it preaches something. Now you might recall in, if you saw The Social Dilemma, they, uh, they actually illustrate the problem like this. They've got these sort of anonymous tech guys that are pulling levers and, and hitting buttons in a control room. And, and bit by bit, they're able to create a, a 3D model of Ben, who's the main character in the documentary. And, and the more data that they gather on Ben and the, the better predictions that they make about Ben, the more accurate the model of Ben becomes and the more valuable the technology is to those third-party companies. And so that, that image of that model of Ben, that really stuck with me. You know, just this mindless zombie that they've been able to create in Ben's image. Um, and, you know, the more that I've wrestled with this, I realized something that the filmmakers didn't intend because they're not thinking about this theologically. But this is a profoundly theological problem. Because if I've understood right, then what's happening is that these tech companies, they are creators. They're creators doing an act of creation. They are taking all of the data and they're creating a model of you and I that, that's like realistic and is predictable and is easy to manipulate because it thinks like you and it acts like you and it wants what you want. And, and this model hates the things that you hate. And this model believes the things that you believe. It is not alive. It's not a life, but it behaves like something that is alive because it has to, it has to in order for the algorithm to work. And so that mo that's the model that they've created and that model is for sale. It's for sale and it is bought and sold thousands of times a day by companies and interest groups and influencers and it is making them very, very rich. So think of that. They've taken our choices and our relationships, and our ideas, and our opinions, and all the things that make us unique, all the things that make us human, all the signs of God's image in us, and they've turned that into a commodity. A commodity, just like coffee, or lumber, or gasoline, or any other thing that companies can buy on the open market. 
and they buy and they sell this model and we just play along. We just react, we just click and scroll and stare with no idea what's going on behind the scenes. And I just think that as Christians, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware that that's the model that we're, we're participating in because it's actually kind of dehumanizing, isn't it? Isn't it just a, like even more than a little bit just dehumanizing? Like you are more precious in God's sight than anything else in the world. His image is stamped on you and this business model dishonors us. It dishonors us and it dishonors him. And that's what I mean when I say that it's dishonorably profitable. I'm saying that these profits are coming at the cost of human worth, human dignity, human uh, flourishing. In fact, the more that I've reflected on this over the last year or so, it, it, it occurs to me, there's one other industry in human history in which a handful of people grow rich off of a person's relationships and their, their emotional experiences. One other industry where the better that you appear, the more they profit off you. One other industry where you're rewarded for surface connections and you're punished for deep ones, where, where people will pay a lot of money for the most intimate parts of your life. One other industry in, in human history where they keep you addicted so that you keep coming back for more. You can never break free. One industry where the more you put yourself out there, the worse it is for you, but the better it is for them. Now, I'm not talking about child labor. That, that's evil, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about slavery either. That is an evil, wicked system, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is prostitution. It's prostitution. What do you think of that? Now, I'm not saying that if you use social media that you are a prostitute or that you're like a prostitute. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you are evil. I'm saying that apart from careful, disciplined, discerning, boundaried use of social media and other persuasive technologies, you and I are participating in a system that traffics human life the way that a pimp traffics prostitutes. Okay? A system that exploits and just and wants us to just believe that they're offering us a service. A system that believes fundamentally that human life is a commodity that they can buy and sell. That's their message. Okay? That's their message. And we should take that very, very seriously. That's their message. Now, what's ours? What's ours? And, and, and here, I think I, I want to remind us of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. My friends, that is so important. It is so important because these tech companies have led us to believe whether they intended to or not, we have, they have us believing that they have us, that we can't get out, we can't break out of the matrix. And God says, no, not true. In my mercy, I made you alive in Christ. You are saved. And that's who we are. 
okay? That's who you are. That's your identity today. These tech companies have us believing that what really matters is likes and follows and retweets. Like that's the ultimate status. And God's saying here, no, 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 no. I raised you up. I raised you up with my son, Jesus. You are with me and him in the heavenly places. Like that's your status. That's who we are. Isn't that amazing? That these tech companies, they've got us thinking that we're, we're nothing but consumers. We're users. God says, no, you're my handiwork. I made you. I created you in Christ Jesus for good works. Like I've got good, important work for you to do. And, and this isn't it. And, and yo, that's who we are. And that's from just one passage of scripture. And there's many, many others we could, we could look at. But let me just share a couple more. Because maybe we think that these tech companies know us better than we know ourselves. Maybe we think that we're just cogs in the machine and there's, maybe there's nothing unique about us after all. Well, God says, no, if, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so in Christ, you're, you're nothing like the world has ever seen. Like you are a new creation. There's absolutely nothing else on earth like you and no one else on earth like you. That is who we are. That's who we are. And tech companies have us believing that what happens online is what matters. Like if we put our phones away, if we put our computers down, we're going to miss something. And FOMO exerts an incredible amount of, of power over us. And God says, Romans 14, 8, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And so our, our lives have meaning, not in relation to what's going on online, but in relation to God and his purposes. You see, whether, whether we live or die, our life exists for him. That's who we are. That's who we are. Do you, you hear that? Do you feel that? And tech companies, maybe because of the ways that you use technology, you've come to believe that you are nothing but a, com- but a collection of stereotypes, you know, all you are you know, is, is an unimportant voice among a crowd of others. Your opinions aren't yours. They're not unique. They're not important. All you are is a composite of all the other users who look and sound like you in the same demographic. You're just a stereotype. Well, it's easy to believe that if all you do is participate in social media all day. But God says, no, you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's special possession so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. That's what God says in 1 Peter 2.9. You see, in Christ, we are God's special possession. He says that. We are his people. We are his servants, qualified to serve him, qualified to serve the world. And we're his messengers. And he chose us for all these things. He chose us for that. He chose you for that. And he didn't have to. But that's who we are in Jesus. That's who we are. So, as we wrap up, the last thing I want to do is just to ask, what, what can we do about this? Like, what are, some, what are some steps we can take to translate this view of who we actually are in Jesus into different practices online? Now, you might feel like it's a good idea at this point to delete all your accounts. And the last thing I'm going to do is try to change your mind. 
I think there's lots of good reasons why you might want to do that. Like, just to be clear, we lived a long time without this technology. It's not going to kill you to get off of social media. You can live without it, okay? Even, even if it's only a temporary thing, even if it's only for a while, you can live without being on this technology. At the same time, I don't think that's the only option. I don't think it's our, it's, I don't think it's our responsibility to get off. I don't think that it's our responsibility even to, to tear down the system. Maybe some of us are, are called to that, but I, I, I don't think that that's our collective responsibility as the church. I do think that it's our responsibility in light of what is true about us in Jesus to realign the ways that we use this tech with that identity. And I think that might look different for different people, right? But, but, but to be really practical, let me translate this into a few things I think are going to help. Number one, I would just encourage you to disable all or almost all of your notifications. Like no more of this lifestyle of like, dude, somebody liked your tweet. Like, oh my goodness, do something. Like, no, if it's, if it's going to be an interruption in your life, disable it. That's a very simple thing we can do to stay in control of our, our tech and, and, and use it on our terms so that it's not using us. So it's not controlling us. So, so go ahead, disable your notifications. You'll be glad you did Another thing you can do is disable your location settings. There is no reason why Facebook needs to know where I am at all times. There is absolutely no good reason for that. On the other hand, if I'm using an app like Waze, which is what I use to get directions, I needed to know where I am. So, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to disable GPS on Facebook and as many other apps as possible. And I'm going to leave it on the ones that need that information when they need it. I don't even need to keep GPS on like indefinitely, I can just enable it when I use the app. If you want to be really next level, you can install what's called a virtual private network. Uh, so, so take that VPN, download it, install it, and you can really cover your tracks online uh, so that they can't follow you. So again, disable your GPS. You'll be really glad you did. Another thing you can do is delete. Delete liberally. Delete apps that you don't use. Delete apps that make you depressed. Delete apps that make you bitter and jealous and materialistic and that waste your time like as long as it is on your phone even if it's not you know being used even if it's not something you come back to regularly it is still there collecting and sharing data about you and so like it's your phone it's your computer so go ahead and and take control of it delete these apps delete them and i think another thing you can do is to report what I mean is instead of scrolling past ads or invites or, or posts that are, you know, maybe offensive, report it. Report it. It takes about two seconds. And when you report something, what you're doing is you're saying, no, that thing, that's offensive or it's inappropriate or it's, it's not relevant for my lifestyle or it's something, it's not, it's not true. It's a conspiracy theory. And, and uh, about a year ago, I spent a couple of weeks reporting almost every single ad, almost every single invitation that I saw that I didn't want in my feed. And I almost never need to report things anymore. But what I found is that the more that you report, the more that you're showing the algorithm that it bet wrong. You're teaching it to make better bets. And if it makes better bets, the better that you will actually enjoy your social media feed. So go ahead, be a tattletale, all right? Report widely. And then I think the final step that we can take as users of this persuasive technology is you guys unfollow people, unfriend them. 
One of the best things that I did in the last year was I unfollowed more than half of my Facebook friends. Nobody here, nobody on this call, just to be clear. But uh, but I unfollowed a ton of people whose posts were just way too many. Like people who were just posting constantly and just clogging up my feed. People whose posts were critical or overly political or divisive or people whose posts were just way, you know, super pretentious. Like here, look at my perfect life. And you just know that that's not true. And I unfollowed them because you can unfollow a person and still stay connected with them as friends on social media. So I unfollowed a whole bunch of them. Then I also unfriended a bunch of them. So for me, my rule about unfriending is this. If I wouldn't recognize you on the street, or if I did see you on the street, but it would I wouldn't stop and talk to you, or you wouldn't stop and talk to me if we saw each other, then you know what? Like, I'm sure you're a great person, but we're not actually friends. And the more people who I'm not actually friends with who are connections on my uh, social media accounts, that just means that they're skewing the algorithm and I don't need that and neither do you. So again, unfollow, unfriend, go for it. You'll be, you'll be glad you did. And I think in all of this, what I, what I know is that I can't stop these tech companies from getting my data. Okay. I can't stop that. But to be honest, I don't want them to stop. What I want to do is I want to control the flow of that data so that the algorithm serves my life and isn't exploiting my life. Okay? Like, there are good reasons for them to have my data. I don't want to stop that. I want my use of this technology to reflect that I believe Jesus is Lord and not the algorithm. And so the days when when we mindlessly participated in this system, those days are over, man. They're, they're over. We are not for sale. And, and we are not a commodity. We are his people. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is who we are. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.